0: Hey, everyone, thanks so much for joining our adventure this week as we explore the Book of Laments. Hopefully this will brighten your day. <laughs> Seriously, with that being said, but the nature of this book, we will be discussing some hard-hitting topics that include graphic and violent imagery. For those with little ones around, discretion may be welcome. Look, in the ancient world, this is how your life went. You were either a conquering city or a city being conquered. And the book of Lamentations gives us great insight into the traumatic experience of the Babylonian captivity that we've been talking about since the time of the kings. It was such a traumatic event that it radically and foundationally shaped how the Israelite people viewed the world. And it was the perfect poetic culmination of everything that leads up to it. Theoretically, you could read the entire Old Testament with the captivity and exile in mind and find a whole new world of meaning within the pages of this book. But why was it so traumatic, you may ask? Yeah, it's, it's true that the events of the Babylonian invasion were violent. So violent, in fact, that the poet in Lamentations recounts the cannibalism that took place. Actual cannibalism. Specifically, that women were forced to eat their children or men their own theses. And mind you, this isn't like being in New York and watching a bunch of strangers go crazy. This is like watching your mother or your aunt make the choice that your little brother is the sacrifice needed for your life. But this actually might not have been the most traumatizing aspect of the invasion. In the ancient world, there was no separation of church and state. In fact, cities were usually built around honoring some sort of patron deity. Just stop by Athens today, if you ever get the chance. You'll find that looming above the massive city was at one point a 20-foot-tall statue of the goddess Athena, whose shadow the city once rested. It's built high up on the Acropolis, which Acropolis, by the way, literally means city high point. And all the major cities in Greece have these. Athens, Corinth, Delphi all with a patron deity. And long before Hellenism, ancient people all over the world were doing this. Oftentimes, the palace was built next to the temple. The priest had great political sway. The king commuted with religious officials. So when an attacking army of people invaded and destroyed your city, they have to capture and destroy two main places. The king's palace and the temple. When they destroyed the king's palace, they would often bind the king hand and foot naked and then walk them back to the attacking capital city to behead them. When they destroyed the temple, they often desecrated the altar by either defecating on it or offering sacrifices that went against your religious tradition. They would then loot the temple and kill the priests. This was all a way, a symbol of telling the world that your god was weak and the attacking god was strong. Invasions were almost always, symbolically anyway, representative of whose god was better. And this was the norm in the ancient world. You were either a conquering city or a city being conquered. And so we have city laments from all kinds of cultures, including Babylonian cities. The lament was a common form of religious poetry, and so when any one group was captured or destroyed, the ones that remained alive reflected their experience through poetry. Luckily, we do have some of this ancient poetry preserved for us in the beautiful manuscripts of (laughs) Google.com. And I think it sets up our time in the Book of Lamentations really nicely. So let's take some time to look at some Babylonian lament poems. The first poem has been translated to be called Lamentation over the destruction of Ur, which was likely the first line of the poem. We have several of these from the Babylonians with similar names and structures. Lamentation over the destruction of Eridu," Lamentation over the destruction of Sumer and Ur, Lamentation over the destruction of Nippur. I, I mean, the Babylonians probably wrote about a dozen or more Lamentations over the destruction of poems. And they all have the same basic shape. One, the cry to the gods two, the characteristics of the city, three, the destruction of the temple, and four, the deity's decision to destroy them. What's really interesting about this structure is that it portrays the city, and thus, literarily, the people within the city, as innocent victims of the destruction of the city, and then paints the gods as the ones who are the destroyers. And this would fit well within their cosmological framework, because humans were created out of the hatred of the gods, to be laborers, slaves, under the thumb of the oppressive deities. And the destruction of the city is just definitive proof of all of that, that gods hate humans, and when humans can't perform well, they are destroyed. But the humans remain innocent bystanders. Listen to this translation of the Babylonian lament, The Destruction of Ur. O thou city of Ur, thou hast been destroyed. O thou city of Ur, thy land has perished. O my city, like an innocent ewe, thy lamb has been torn away from me. O Ur, like an innocent goat, thy kid has perished. Because the Lord, whose house has been attacked, his city was given over to tears. Because of Nana, whose land had perished, Ur intensifies its lament. The utter destruction of my city, verily the gods ordered the utter destruction of Ur verily they ordered that its people be killed as its fate verily they decreed biblical laments however are often different with a different structure it may very well be that the lamentations found within our bibles are in communication with these laments whereas most of the ancient city laments focused on innocence or perseverance of the people within the city biblical laments often follow this structure instead one the cry to yahweh or a cry of distress Two, the recognition of hope. And three, the plea for restoration. The biblical authors come from a distinctly unique worldview in that humanity was created out of the goodness, the love, the care of God's own creative heart. But recognize that humanity constantly pulls away from God and does that which is contrary to what God desires for humans. So the lamentation over Jerusalem that's found in our Bibles would reflect that very idea. They share a crying out to God or the gods, and they share the belief that it is the God or gods who caused the destruction. But the biblical authors seem to come to a completely different conclusion within their laments. Namely, that God is not only the source of destruction, but also the source of life and hope. As the author of Ecclesiastes says, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other. The book of lamentations follows the same pattern as any lament poem within the psalms or elsewhere the cry of distress the recognition of hope the plea for restoration the book of laments however is comprised of five lament poems that make up the whole book each poem also follows this structure but on a micro scale I don't know, it's like they did this on purpose or something. The first two poems, or the first two chapters, comprise the cry of distress. And by the way, I'm going to use the titles given to me by the illustrated Bible survey by Ed Henson and Elmer L. Towns because I think they did a great job at capturing the heart of each poem. I also think that when we view the poems in their light, we can actually map onto the poems the biblical characters that the authors may have been thinking of while writing these, which will be important later in the episode. Anyway, enough of the disclaimers. The Cry of Distress poems open up with Chapter 1, Poem 1, and we call it the Morning Widow Poem, because Jerusalem is portrayed as this widow who's been abandoned by her close friends and family. She has experienced a relational and physical death in her life that has left her empty and purposeless. Lamentations 1, 2 says, quote, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. This mourning widow, which is a metaphor for Jerusalem, reminds us of Eve in the garden being broken away from her husband. And then in poem two, chapter two, Jerusalem is a weeping daughter, crying out for her father to see her. In his anger, he has left her, and she sits and weeps with a cloud over her head. And no, I'm not being melodramatic. That's exactly what the poem says. In Lamentations two one. it says, quote, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns. Uh, it calls to mind Hagar, sitting and weeping by the river stream. The cry of distress section ends after poem two. And poem three enters us into the recognition of hope. Christian and Jewish men and women for centuries have found comfort in the words of Lamentations chapter three. And I encourage all of you to go and read the whole book today. I mean, it's only five pages long and it'll take you 10 minutes, but this central chapter will hit you really powerfully when you read it all together. Chapter three portrays Jerusalem, Israel, really, As an afflicted man, his hope has been dried up. He has, quote, forgotten what happiness is, and his mouth is full of bitter herbs, dried and wearied from his distress. He says, God is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside to see my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, and so has my hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. This should remind us of the suffering servant from Isaiah. It should call to mind the promises of the messianic king coming from the line of Judah. But there are still two more poems. The Pleas for Restoration. Now that the poet has recognized his hope is in God and in God alone, he pleads with him for a divine intervention to redeem and restore Jerusalem. He compares Jerusalem to a piece of gold that was once the gleaming, shining hope for the nations and has now been corroded over and is dim and tarnished. He calls to mind the story of Sodom in poem 4, verse 6. He says, For the chastisement of the daughter of my peoples has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. And then finally, poem 5 concludes the Lamentations. And it describes Jerusalem as a fatherless child, longing and yearning for a father to embrace him. The child finds nothing. He reflects on how this means they have no more inheritance, no more hope in this land given to them. And he reflects on how it was the fault of their ancestors, the fault of their fathers, that they bear this iniquity now. And I wouldn't be so sure that the poet wants to be fathered right now. But that's the beauty of Lamentations. As scholars have noted for centuries, the Book of Lamentations gives us a real, open, and honest look at the human condition. It teaches us that we do not need to be in any kind of posture before the Lord to be open with him. The biblical authors found rest in crying out to him in their distress, in their anger, in their sorrow, in their desperation. And we can look to these poems when we find ourselves there. And that's really what we need to talk about in this episode, because we would be missing the entire point of this book if we did not talk about our own sufferings. I found myself well acquainted with grief over the course of my life, and I'm sure many of you have as well. Perhaps it's not grief over the loss of someone's life, but what about uh, grieving a friendship? Grieving a relationship you thought would last longer? Grieving a place you thought you'd grow up in? Grief rests within us all at some point in our lives because to grieve is to be human. To suffer loss and death is to be human. To, to suffer is to be human. And the poet of Lamentations, I'm certain, sees the suffering of the city as much bigger than the nation of Israel. Not less than the nation, mind you, but certainly bigger. I think the poet sees the destruction of Jerusalem as a human problem and if the snake crusher is going to come and be human as we've talked about he too will be entered into the culture of human lament and for those that dwell within his kingdom they will also be entered into what it means to be human they will also suffer Each character that maps onto the poem reminds us and brings us back to the spaces we were in when we encountered those characters. Eve in the garden, Hagar by the river, Adam eating the fruit. It reminds us whose company we are in. It reminds us that we are not alone, that we too are entered into the great cosmic human narrative. It reminds us that our only hope, our only way forward is by seeing God for who he truly is and us for who we truly are. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. Thanks so much. My name is Austin. This was Bible Unbound.